This is Mark Steiner. Welcome back here to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, our weekly look at food, our environment, and energy systems, and our future. Uh, and one of the big news items coming up in the last week was the fact that Bayer, yes, the people who make the aspirins that some of you use, not all of you use, uh, agreed to buy Monsanto, which is a company that um, that manufactures uh, and owns most of the GMO plants on this planet. Uh, and it's a $60 billion deal, and there's a lot of controversy around this. Um, and uh, we're going to try to parse and walk our way through that with our guest here. Joining us is Patty Lavera, who is Assistant Director of Food and Water Watch, where she coordinates the food team. And, Patty, welcome. Good to have you with us. Hi. Thanks for having me. So this is huge news. So you have, you have Bayer, which is a German company um, that wants to buy uh, Monsanto. So on, on the face of it, there, there are all kinds of issues here. I mean, um, Bayer makes a leave. It makes Alka-Seltzer. It makes aspirins. It also has its foot in the door uh, with some of the chemicals revolving around pesticides and more. Um, oh, let me just stop you real quick. Welcome to the program. Bill Fries has just joined us, uh, Center for Food Safety Science Policy An- Analyst. And, Bill, welcome. Good to have you with us, too. Thanks, Mark. Glad, glad, glad you could join us. So let's begin there. So wh- why is this causing such um, – uh, such an uproar and conundrum with some people. Patty? Um, yeah, it, it is. Uproar is the right word. So, you know, Monsanto is a pretty infamous company for folks who are tuned in at all to food issues and or just other environmental issues. I mean, they have a long track record of making things uh, that have had a real negative impact on their our environment. And GMOs are, you know, a, a incredibly controversial, um, you know, lots of downsides for Farmers, consumers, the environment, public health. And so when you hear about a company that already has too much power, has used that power in the market to promote you know, unsustainable technologies, merging with yet another big player, uh, it, it causes concerns. And this is also has to be put in context of other big deals that are also happening this year. So Dow and DuPont are other big players in this chemical agriculture, you know, seed and, and pesticide markets. They want to merge. That's being reviewed. And Syngenta another big player that Monsanto actually tried to merge with last year, and Syngenta said no. Syngenta is now being acquired by um, the chemical company of the Chinese government, ChemChina. So that introduces yet a whole other layer of things. So this is an already consolidated industry, lots and lots of control by just a couple players, and now it's going to get even more consolidated if all of these deals go through. So so before we get deep into this, uh, Bill Bill Fries, let me just throw out to you that, that, I mean, this is not a done deal. This has to go through layers and layers of government, American government bureaucracy, but also European and European Union bureaucracy, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Antitrust reviews. So there's a chance this, I mean, there, there, some people are making the argument that people are getting upset about something that may never even happen. Well, you know, we need to understand that, you know, in the past decade or two, antitrust um, uh, regulation has weakened considerably. There have been so many big deals go through that, you know, really shouldn't go through because they're anti-competitive and they have bad effects, um, and yet they still go through. So I think there is, you know, very serious and grounded concern that, that this could go through. But, you know, hopefully, and we're going to push the Department of Justice in particular to, you know, really give this uh, merger close scrutiny because it definitely should not go through. It will lead to way too much concentration. And when I say concentration, I mean not just in the seed market, but also in pesticides. And, you know, increasingly now, because of genetic engineering technology, which really got rolling in the mid-90s, we see that seeds and pesticides have, you know, become so intertwined that you really need to look at both markets and both of them, you know, together. Um, Bayer is the number two producer of pesticides in the world, and Monsanto is the leader in seeds. Uh, so this would really be a BMS, this company, uh, this merged company. And um, one of the issues I hope we can talk about is how this would increase, tighten the linkages between seeds and pesticides, which we're already seeing because of biotechnology. It would tighten those linkages still more and make our agriculture still less sustainable, more dependent on you know, toxic pesticides, which are not good for people and um, certainly not good for now, let's do talk about that. I mean, it's one of the things, Patty, that, that, that um, some arguments here being made in the Wall Street Journal and some other places that I was reading about this morning in Bloomberg 
um, about this particular deal. Um, T- Tyler Cohen, I think, is one of the people I was reading just before we got together here, who writes for Bloomberg, um, was saying, look, this is this – is, people are, are hating Monsanto, but there's been no real evidence that anything that – the GMOs really hurt people, A and B – um, that um, that this is what farmers want and need to be able to grow their products, and and this and so it's become kind of a assault on Monsanto, which is why people don't want this deal to take place uh, when this is really the wave of the future. Now, how, how do we respond to that? Well, um, there's a lot going on there. I guess uh, <laughs> or this week the Senate Judiciary Committee had a hearing about all of these deals. Um, they said they had called in all the companies. I think all of them showed up except Camp China. But then they also had some farm groups. The National Farmers Union is opposed to these deals. They're concerned about it because they're the customers. Uh, you know, they're the ones buying the seeds and the chemicals. And they it's very clear to them when you have less competitors in that marketplace, they're going to pay more for those inputs. Um, you know, the, the Farm Bureau was at the same hearing. They weren't quite as strong, but they expressed concern and said, we need more players in these marketplaces, not less. And they're very typically very sympathetic to these big companies, so so for them to express concern is actually saying something, you know, to back it out about GMOs and and what we know and and we know that there's no harm. We don't buy that. Lots of other folks around the world don't buy that. Um, you know, GMOs are a tool of industrialized agriculture that sell very expensive patented seeds to farmers that to be grown with specific weed killers or, you know, or other chemicals. And it's not a coincidence that these big chemical companies got in the seed business and packaged those things together. So it's a business model that's promoting chemical use. And, you know, they're looking to get bigger as one, as, as Dow and DuPont merged, everybody else wanted to merge to get bigger, to keep up with them. Um, you know, and it's, it's not a model that's going to get us off the chemical treadmill and towards more sustainable agriculture because they have very little incentive to do that research and invest in those types of seeds. They want to keep pumping out these patented, very expensive, branded, you know, um, linked to chemical types of seeds. That's their business model, and it's only going to become more more dominant. It's already pretty dominant here in the U.S. They want to make it more dominant worldwide because that's what they've decided their business model is. But so, so Bill, let, let me just explore a bit what this would mean if, if this if this if this goes through. I mean, earlier in the earlier in our conversation, um, uh, Patty was kind of talking about um, Dow and Dupont um, and other companies that may be trying or attempting to merge and grow with with other companies. So, I mean, what would this what would it mean if it was allowed to go through? And 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 what would that would what would you both pretend that would mean for the future? And B, what would it mean if they didn't allow it to go through? How would it change things? Yeah, well, I think it's uh, to understand that we need to step back just a minute go and, ahead. and go a little bit deeper into the whole linkage between seeds and pesticides that I was talking about that Patty mentioned, too. And if you look at Monsanto's you know, biotech empire, it's mainly um, crop varieties, corn, soybeans, cotton, and others that have been genetically engineered to resist its market-leading herbicide roundup, the chemical. And what we've seen is that glyphosate has become by far the world's leading pesticide. I mean, there's nearly 300 million pounds of this stuff, right? This is a weed killer. is used in U.S. agriculture alone. And what we've seen is that this massive use of glyphosate, which is, you know, which farmers can now spray with abandon because the crop won't die when, um, it's, when it's sprayed on them. Um, what's happened is we, we have all, an epidemic now of weeds that are resistant to glyphosate. And this has occurred in the same way that when you use an antibiotic too much, bacteria evolve resistance. In the same way, over 80 million acres of U.S. cropland are now infested with these glyphosate-resistant weeds. So this is a huge problem for farmers. And unfortunately, the response of the agrochemical industry is to develop crops that are immune to multiple herbicides. Right? And so this is going to lead to still more heavier spraying of additional herbicides, as well as glyphosate, more resistant weeds. And it's what some uh, analysts, agronomists, have called the transgenic treadmill, right? an analogy to the pesticide treadmill, where you have to keep spraying and spraying, resistance arises, and then you spray some more. Uh, a lot of these herbicides that these crops are being made resistant to uh, are toxic. You know, glyphosate was recently found in 2015 to 
be probably carcinogenic to human beings. And this is the judgment of the world's leading authority, okay, on, on cancer, the World Health Organization, uh, International Agency for Research on Cancer, and similarly with other herbicides. So to get back to Bayer, Bayer has a huge uh, portfolio of herbicides. They also have herbicide-resistant crops, actually the, the second leading one, called Liberty Lane. Um, so this merged company is going to have every incentive to pump out still more of you know, these harmful crop varieties, which ultimately are not in anyone's best interest. They increase you know, chemical dependence. They're going to be bad for human health and the environment as well. Um, and then just one other aspect of the merger that I think deserves attention is that Bayer is also the leading producer of uh, insecticides that are used uh, as coatings on the seeds of most major field crops like corn, soybeans, cotton, and others. All right, these are neonicotinoids, which a lot of you know, uh, listeners will have heard of, or neonics for short. And cover that a lot. These are, highly, these are highly toxic insecticides that, as the seedling grows, they get into the tissues of the growing plant, and they've been found to be very toxic pollinators and are part of the picture with pollinator decline agents, like honeybees and other Bear Monsanto, the, the merged company, would have, again, every incentive to expand the use uh, of these toxic seed coatings onto all of, you know, mostly Monsanto's um, seeds, Monsanto's seeds. So, you know, this is really bad news for uh, human health and the environment, as well as um, the farmers. So... I mean, it does seem to be, in some ways, Patty Lavera, a, a, a trend um, of kind of this consolidation to really f- f- narrow down the market, but also fight for the market between maybe two or three or four gigantic companies. You see the same thing happening in the way we raise animals here in America uh, and across the globe, but as well now in 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 terms of. Uh, the, the the pesticides and plant management and creating and who owns the patents. I mean, this is this. Uh, it's a battle between these giants. But the, the, to talk a bit about the politics of this and why you are not as sanguine as others that this may not come to pass. Well, um, yeah. I mean, we have an economy wide trend of mergers, right? I mean, think about how many airlines are left. You know, banks are merging telecommunications. It's it's not isolated to agriculture, but it's been particularly intense in the last couple of years in, in food and agriculture. Um, you know, and and it shows that we've had antitrust policy that hasn't been working and combined with not really had enough political will to be used. You know, when we look at food company mergers, we think that they're measuring things wrong when they make the calculation of whether to block a deal or not, um, you know, at the Department of Justice. And very often they use very narrow calculations that don't really reflect, like, all of the ways that it, when, a comp- when two companies merge and they have higher market share, yes, they have some more you know, economic power in that one particular product. But the way that food systems work, they can end up with, with even more power. One example is when a company makes not just you know, they, they, uh, a meat company. Traditionally, we had chicken companies, and then we had pork companies, and we had beef companies. Now we have companies that make all of those. And so it's not just that they're competing for customers of chicken – they can control pricing across the whole back of the store in the meat case and manipulate prices more there and, and keep customers in kind of their corporate family by um, by manipulating on those products because they have more horizontal control. So there's a lot more complications in food that we need, um, especially our federal antitrust regulators, to understand. I mean, what's interesting about a couple of these deals is the seed industry has had attention on it for decades for already being very consolidated, already having just a couple of big players with a lot of control. I mean, they were big buying sprees from the mid-80s into the early 2000s where lots of smaller seed companies got gobbled up by these guys, especially Monsanto. So we already had attention being paid, um, especially in the last six or eight years, to the seed industry as being possibly not competitive already. And then you see essentially is the big six companies that are chemical companies who also sell seeds turning into, you know, four and a half <laughs> with, with now bringing in Chinese ownership. So that's, you know, a, yet another yet another level of consolidation that's happening in an already consolidated market. And 
you know, the, what's interesting when we talk to farmers groups and when we talk to folks who think about antitrust, they're clearly identifying these deals as exposing the gaps in our antitrust law. They're not super equipped to really calculate what's going on in these markets. And so we need to be talking about what incentives do these companies have to do the right research and development for a sustainable food supply that's resilient to climate change or new pests that we haven't discovered yet. You know, what um, what happens when you have foreign a foreign government-sponsored company that can approve whether or not a new GMO can be sold in China, they now have ownership of a big GMO producer. You know, so what happens to those competitors that they have if they don't have a tight relationship with the Chinese government and their GMOs can't be sold there? I mean, we have stuff our antitrust laws have never thought about. And so we really ha- – and so we were happy to see the Senate have a hearing this week just to start to air some of this out. The other thing um, I will say is in the food industry – it's so consolidated at most steps that they have they have started to at least examine a couple deals. And last year, the government blocked one deal between uh, U.S. Food Service and Cisco Foods, in part because number one and number two wanted to merge. They were going to merge. They call it merge to monopoly, right? You merge the two biggest mm-hmm. players to one new player. Even the Department of Justice said, yeah, that's a problem. We can't let this one go through. Actually, I'm sorry, that was the Federal Trade Commission. Um, so even federal regulators had to stop that deal because it was so outrageous. You were going to be down to one player in most cities that would be delivering food to restaurants. So we've gotten so far um, in terms of high market share for a couple of players in lots of pieces of the food chain that we're starting to see some interest from regulators. But this is many decades in the making that we got to this point. So I'm curious how we think that um, – and I'll let you pick up on this first and go right back to Patty – how this changes – how this would change the dynamic of the science and research and where we're going um, if something like this went through. And as we see in these markets, as, as Patty was describing, going down to four and a half large companies really um, – <coughs> pardon me – and, and what, that would, what, what that would mean. Um, let me stop there. I have a second part of that question. Let me stop there. Yeah, well, yeah, just to put some numbers onto this, the the, uh, the three major mergers, if they all go through Bayer and Monsanto, Dow and DuPont, and Syngenta and ChemChina, basically four firms would control 73% of the world market in uh, pesticides and seeds, if you combine them. That's just an, an unheard of degree of concentration that by any traditional measure of, you know, over-concentration is, you know, just off the charts. Um, so what would it mean? You know, again, I think, <clears throat> as I explained before, I think one of the, you know, real issues is, the, you know, again, tightening the linkages between seeds and pesticides and taking us ever further from sustainable agriculture. Um, we know that Monsanto has a long history of, you know, as it's bought up a lot of seed firms um, over the past several decades, uh, withdrawing the uh, options of, you know, conventional seeds. They're, it's very difficult to find conventional seeds uh, from Monsanto anymore. So that's, you know, a real, in addition to the increased seed prices, which, you know, of course is a real concern, farmers also complain about not getting uh, as much choice as they used to have. For instance, conventional seeds or maybe biotech seeds that only have one trait versus seven or eight. So, you know, it's reduced choice of seeds is a real concern. Um, and then, you know, I think just to take a step back, sustainable agriculture is, is, is possible. You know, it is possible to farm with either without pesticides, like organic farmers, or um, with sparing use of pesticides. Um, and unfortunately, this model that these mergers are going to, you know, if they go through, would take farmers ever further from, you know, kind of a sustainable model that is healthier for, you know, people in the environment. And again, we're also talking about the long-term interests of farmers as well. Resistant weeds, you know, and harm to pollinators, this is not this is not good for farmers, right? This is, is going to have neg- major negative impact on farmers too, whether all of them see it now or not. So, you know, I think if we want to, you know, finally break free of this you know, chemical pesticide-dominant agricultural model that we have, uh, a first essential step is to stop these mergers. And we really should go further, too. We really should have divestiture. Uh, uh, divestiture. Yeah, I think, I think you know, we really need to create some distance between pesticide companies and all of these seeds. 
the mergers, and then let's get on talking about having, you know, this already too high degree of concentration, um, you know, reduce it. And the best way to do that would be to have, for instance, Monsanto, force Monsanto to divest some of the seed companies to purchase, and likewise with the other companies. So before we jump into the kind of strategic questions, Patty, I, you know, one of the things I keep thinking about, because people hear this and they read perhaps the Post, the Sun, the, the Times, whatever people are reading, and like there was a line in the in the in the in the um, Washington Post article about this particular merger, um, and um, and I'll just, let me just read it so you can comment on this, okay? It said with its, we're talking about the 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 um, uh, Monsanto's development and and the development of this entire industry. He said, with its rapid development and fierce protection of genetically engineered seeds and pesticides, Monsanto has been made into the arch villain for some environmental and consumer advocates who worry about the chemical underpinnings of frankenseeds, threatening human health and allow laboratories to play God. The, 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 the advanced seeds have also provided a, far, a range of benefits, including a stronger pest resistance, stream, streamlined weed control, and more efficient harvests around the world. And as people look at their fear of hunger around the planet and more, um, it, it becomes, you know, not for many people who who are not as concerned about the consolidation just because it's just so overwhelmingly huge, but see the benefits of something that helps everybody in the long run, at least in, from some perspectives. I mean, how, how do we talk about that? Uh, I mean, on one level to talk about it is, is control. I mean, anytime there's really no part of the food system where you're not coming back to seed. Um, you know, even for animals, they have to eat something. They're eating a crop that came from seed. And, and setting aside what technology they're using, having just a couple of large companies control 70% of the seed globally gives them an enormous amount of power. Um, it gives them economic power to charge what they want to farmers who may or may not be able to afford it but may not have any other alternative for what they need to grow. It gives them a lot of political power to write the rules. Um, you know, and that does take us to these technologies. Uh, you know, are the are governments going to stand up to these companies that are literally controlling the seed supply for most everybody around the world? Um, and it and it there's a choice issue too. I mean, we have a lot of mythology in this country about how we're deciding. You know, as as shoppers and as consumers, we're voting with our dollars. You know, it's very hard for for us to get something different. Uh, in a system where farmers don't have much of a choice of what they grow. Um, so there's a lot of, of limitations. I mean, the image we use all the time is an hourglass, right? If there's farmers at the top and consumers at the bottom, there's a lot of um, choke points in the middle in terms of, you know, what happens when you're controlling those steps. But there's also a step above farmers, which is the inputs that they buy. And at every point, those those passages are getting more narrow with these mergers, and that gives these companies a lot more control. Um, you know, and, and in terms of the the, the controversy about GMOs and, and this technology, um, lots of parts of the world aren't buying into this model. It's very dominant here, very dominant in places like Brazil and Canada. But there's lots of parts of the world where they've not been happy with how these companies conduct themselves, right? So Monsanto's in a fight in Argentina right now about how much they can charge farmers on their patents. It's been an ongoing issue for years and years in India largely over how they treat farmers and what the prices are. And it becomes an issue of, you know, who is going to be left to farm um, and who can deal and, and, you know, who can make the economics work for them. And increasingly, you have to get bigger as a farmer and a producer to deal with these big companies that are going to sell you your input. So setting aside the technology itself, the level of control over something this basic should worry people who want to have a food supply that's that's stable and, and available and isn't able to be you know, kind of manipulated um, in dramatic ways. So let's talk a little bit here before <coughs> we end the conversation, this part of our conversation today, and and we will, <coughs> pardon me, and we'll return to this soon. Um, what what strategies are? I mean, this is, you see Congress stepping up. They've been asking for very tough questions, um, uh, but this is a long way from being done. There are 30-odd different jurisdictions involved in this around the globe. We have to make decisions on this. It could take quite a while for this to happen. So, um, so I'm very curious what you both think are um, the strategic moves that take place right now. Let me very start quick with Bill Fries, and then we'll conclude with Patty Rivera. Yeah, well, Mark, I think you know. I think the first thing is to bust some of the myths that uh, were, you know, evident in the comments you just uh, talked about earlier from you know people who 
you know, say that biotechnology is needed to feed the world. I mean, I can't tell you how many times this myth has been perpetrated. And the fact is that genetically engineered crops have produced little or no yield increase. I mean, the National Research Council report just found this. Um, and, you know, the I think a lot of commentators just have very superficial knowledge. This is also true of a lot of our politicians. And they bought into a lot of very carefully constructed myths like this one. Um, the actual, actually, one of the main effects of you know, these biotech crops has been to promote bigger farms at the cost of smaller farms. And this is something that USDA has even found in studies that they've done. So I guess first we need to get beyond some of these myths about the you know, supposed benefits. Um, they're, for the most part, not really there. And they're whatever benefits there are, they're far outweighed by the negatives that we've discussed. Um, so I think that's key. And then we need to start listening more closely to farmers and what they're saying. Um, you very seldom you know, get you know, the, the views, viewpoints of farmers, but increasing seed prices are a huge issue with them. And that's largely due to biotechnology and, and increased prices that these firms are selling for seeds. We have to have you know, an affordable seed supply for a farming community. And again, a diversity of seed choices too. Unfortunately, the tendency of these, you know, these mergers is to you know, ultimately reduce choices, reduce the availability of good conventional seeds. So um, you know, I, I think you know, get beyond the myths and you know, start listening to, to farmers more. And I think once we do that, it'll be you know, the, the downsides really serious downsides of these mergers will become more evident and hopefully our legislators will make you know the right decision and um, block both you know the Monsanto fair merger and the other two as well and Pamela Vera, what what role will you all take what do you what what do you what are your strategies here um, yeah I mean we're trying to expose exactly what what Bill's talking about these ideas but I think in terms of what people can do this one feels far away right it's like ooh anti right right regulation but state attorneys general can talk to the Department of Justice and really push them and we have heard that sometimes when the, the DOJ blocks a deal it's because state attorneys general bring it to them and say hey this would do this so that's something people can do a little closer to home is to let you know their elected officials um, at the state level know they're concerned about this let your members of Congress know you're concerned about this. And this does tie into this bigger conversation we're having about our economy, right? We're this week on the Hill. We were also talking about a bank that was so big it couldn't be regulated, right? Why do we want companies so big they can't be regulated in our food supply? So I think there's a, a kind of a economy-wide conversation about how big these companies should be allowed to get. But specifically, I would say, tell your members of Congress, um, you know, tell your other elected officials, we don't need more mergers in the food industry, especially on these seed deals. This is fa- we're going to keep on this um, and take a look at and, and take a look at this in greater depth as the weeks and months pass, and hopefully also have a debate on this program about this as well. Uh, but wanted to outline this for you. It's huge news, um, and it fits right into I think as Pat Lavera just alluded to uh, the hearings are taking place now around the banking industry in Washington D.C. in Congress, uh, and um, and they are not so disconnected. Patty Lavera is Assistant Director of Food and Water Watch, where she coordinates the food team. And Bill Fries is a Center for Food Safety's Science Policy Analyst. And Patty and Bill, thank you so much for taking your time today on the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites. Steiner Show is brought to you by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. For more information, www.mecu.com. 
Welcome back, folks, to the Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites, our weekly look at food, our environment, and our future. Right now, we're about to meet Serafina Palandek. Did I say that right? You did it right. All right. Serafina Palandek is co-founder and president of Hip Chicks Farms, which she runs with her wife, Jennifer Johnson, who's a former sous chef at Chez Panisse and organic food pioneer Alice Waters and executive chef for the Getty family. No small shakes. Good to have you in the studio. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. So <laughs> I love the title, um, Hip Chick Farms. So tell me, let's go tell, well, where is Hip Chick Farms? Well, we are located in Sebastopol, California, which is a rural farming community about an hour and a half north of San Francisco mm-hmm. and also happens to be a hotbed of natural food, natural and organic foods industry. We bought a farm there about five years ago and then started Hip Chicks. And happened to be in a great community for people loving organic foods. So you raise chickens as well as make these products. We do. We we do have a farm, and we have all kinds of. We have, I don't know, forty or fifty rescued farm animals that I have to stop. I'm not allowed to go onto Craigslist any further anymore to rescue any you more are the animals. Rescuer. We both, Jen and I, both are. Yes. So what have we you rescued. Oh, everything. Three draft horses, a pig, donkeys, turkeys. Uh, so we, we've grown so quick. Originally, we were going to raise our own animals for slaughter to use in our products. But we've grown so quickly, we outsource. We, we source really? from farmers across the country now. We have a very small – there's three farmers we source from because it's pretty difficult to find the farmers who are exactly match our attributes, which is organic, non-GMO, humanely raised. Humanely raised means that they're free-range? Yes, it does. Yeah, they're free. So it's humanely raised um, means a lot of th- different things to a lot of different people. Uh, to me and to Jen, I was vegetarian for twenty plus years. Not now. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to me, it really. I have to see the farm, visit the farmer, get to know the family, and view the environment that the animals are raised in because we do chicken and turkey now. Um, so really understand how they're raised, what environment they have to move about in, what their life's like, and then also how they're processed is really important to us. You know, how they're slaughtered. And... Yes. That's, I'm interested in that part too because I've, I mean, um, having covered this for a long time and been in that world myself a little bit, that, 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 that's a huge issue. Yes. I know. So, but, so, so you began to raise these chickens and did you always and, – and you create this product line, uh, your own nuggets and more, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, but was that your p- p- thought in the beginning? You were going to well, raise these chickens and then create these products? And- let me back up a little bit. Okay. So I say our story really starts 25 years ago. Uh, Jen went to the Culinary Institute in in San Francisco, mm-hmm. CIA, and then she went straight from there to Chez Panisse and uh, cooked there for 10 years, really learning the principles of farm to table. I mean, that was that was one of the foundation points of it all. Mm-hmm. So she cooked there for 10 years. Understanding where, you know, learning about farmers and where your food came from and making really simple food beautifully made. And then from there, she got the executive chef job at the Getty family. She's been with them for 16 years. That means years. she cooks for the Gettys? Yes. Literally. Okay, right. Literally cooks for the Gettys. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, Ann and Gordon. Mm-hmm. Um, Gordon is uh, J. Paul Getty's eldest um, son. So she does lunch and dinner. She does uh, food for the kids. She does all of their special events. She's cooked for President Obama four times at the house. Um, and so over the course of all these years, she would make chicken fingers, the simplest food. She would make them from scratch. She would make them from scratch for the children in the house. They actually had a monastery school in their house. Hmm. And, uh, and, and year after year, the folks just loved the chicken fingers. So – we bought it. We have a daughter. She's six now, but at the time she was six months old, and we wanted her to grow up in a rural environment. We wanted her to understand where her food came from, raise animals, all of that. So we moved up to Sebastopol, and we thought, let's start. Let's take Jen's beautiful recipes and pair them with transparent sourcing, because to me that's the most important element to our. I think it's a real breakdown in our food system. Is that folks don't? There is no transparency. There's a lot of suspicion, a lot of distrust for a lot of good reason. Um, and then when it comes to chicken nuggets, every kid loves a chicken nugget, and every parent is suspicious of what goes into it with really good reason. Yeah, we've seen all the seen those videos of this horrible pink goo that is made out of chickens and other parts and weird things that ends up being these nuggets, which is why my poor daughter's when my youngest was little, she always knew. Whenever we drove past to McDonald's and the kids were in the car, the friends of hers, she said, don't ask him. He's not stopping. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, yes. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a weird place we're at culturally that we've been so removed from what real food tastes like that we don't really understand. I think I, I think it's an interesting point to be at where folks don't really know what food tastes like anymore. And I found for myself, I grew up in L.A. You know, I had no relationship to what I was mm-hmm. eating. Uh, so when we moved to the farm and we started raising our own animals, we really could taste the difference in how well-raised food tastes good. Tastes like chicken. <laughs> um, so, so we started, we thought, let's start Hip Chick Farms. How hard could it be? Uh, so we came out with a product line. We, didn't, we started selling and producing in January of 2013. And from there, it's just completely taken off. So when you started the farm, so you didn't have the idea of doing these. These are frozen foods? It is. Right? We call it farm to freezer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, I, so I'm really interested in how this works. So yes. you said they're free range. Because when, when people – when I read things like um, they're humanely raised or, or, they're, or, or that uh, they're organic, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're free range chickens. Yes. People can mean many things by that. Sure. Right? So, So – when you make these, so so you make these yourself. Or they made by. Uh, I mean, clearly, if your wife is a chef, she's not making these McNuggets on her own. Not in our not kitchen. McNuggets, excuse me, chicken nuggets. Yes. on her own, or the chicken meatballs or fingers. No, they're all made in a USDA factory, overseen by Jen. So, so, so she made the recipe. Yes. So, how are these chicken nuggets really different from, or the meatballs different from what you might? buy in the store from anybody else's frozen stuff other than the fact that they're organic? Well, I mean, that that is a big a distinguisher. Piece, right? um, but we use um, – so rather than a traditional chicken nugget, what you think of as pink slime um, is only about 50 percent actual chicken. Right. Uh, there's a lot of fillers, preservatives. It's a ground-up product that uses um, – the parts that aren't traditionally like all of the good pieces of a chicken are taken off and sold, and what's left over is made into a chicken nugget, and they make it taste like chicken by adding fillers and salts and starches. So ours is we take a chicken breast, we slice it, season it, and cook it. Very, 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 very simple, um, and it tastes it tastes it doesn't taste frozen at all. It tastes freshly made, uh, and that way we froze it so we didn't have to add anything, any fillers or preservatives. So it brings you to Baltimore. must be selling your chickens. Yes. <laughs> I'm giving away a lot of chicken nuggets in the next few Where days. Where are chicken nuggets? I don't see any chicken nuggets. The table is not here at the table. <laughs> we will make sure you got some to try. I should have brought some for you to try. Um, we are here to attend Expo East, which is the Natural Products Expo, is here in town. It's once a year. Mm-hmm. So all of the natural and organic food brands come and you know, show their wares. So this is actually a national sales piece you're doing here. Yes. Do yeah. they sell these in Baltimore? Um, yeah, you have mom's markets. Oh, yeah, we do have here. mom's markets. Yeah, we're sold in mom's that's markets. A Maryland, that's a Maryland uh, um, company. Organic only, which right. is great. Right. Yeah. Is- yeah, so back to the question of, like, what's different. So how we make them is different, but also the the animals that we're sourcing are completely different. They're not, you know, they are they have room to grow. They are humanely raised and processed. So what I does think it mean that, to be humanely processed? Okay, so look, the the truth of the matter is is that any animal that we consume has been gone through a slaughterhouse. That's the you know, a point people don't really like to think about too much, mm-hmm. but I think it's important. Um, so how the chickens we use are processed is that they are actually taken out of the farm in the evening at night. Uh, with red lights uh, and taken onto a truck, transported. They're passed through a um, tunnel that removes the oxygen, so it puts them to sleep before that they before they're slaughtered. So they're kind of brain dead before. And the difference is um, they're not completely stressed out and freak like losing their chicken minds before going through the slaughter line. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a lot of work done in the past few years with Temple Grandin and other folks who are really looking at the animal's experience before slaughter, and then it makes for a better experience. For, I mean, they're, they're being killed. It's not a good experience, but but at least it's going to affect the quality. I mean, it does affect the quality right, right, of right. the protein. So how how widespread or common is that way of slaughtering? Not It's not common. I, mean, I haven't really not no. heard much about it. At least not on the East Coast, I haven't heard much about that at all. No, it's not. There's folks that are doing it. Bell and Evans on the East Coast, they're an amazing organization who are doing it. They're vertically, vertically integrated, so they raise their chickens and they process them and they make chicken nuggets. Great company. Uh, Mary's Chicken on the West Coast is doing it, um, so it's it's a movement. So I, you know, I wonder where this. What do you think this? I mean, takes 
where it might take the industry. One of the things I you know, always thought about when it comes to, to, to food and, and animals that you humanely raise, organically raised, like we, you know, we might do a conversation with this woman who I know very well who's raising um, turkeys. And so this is her time of year to get her turkeys sure. ready for slaughter uh, and to sell. And, of course, you know, when, when you talk to folks, most people in America, they can look for a turkey that costs 19 cents a pound. Mm-hmm. Because they have to pay for their family, they can't afford two dollars a pound, dollar mm-hmm. fifty a pound. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how do you think this fits into where we're going? I mean, that because these things, by their very nature, have to be more expensive than what most Americans would buy. Yeah. Well, okay. So that's a incredibly complicated question, I'm not, no, I'm um, which I'm not the expert in. But in my, I mean, I've only been in the food industry for about three years. Right, mm-hmm. I raised money for charities before this, so I come from a very different perspective. Um, but maybe that's a good thing. So, in my mind, it's definitely economies of scale, right? So, the more folks that are growing animals organically and humanely, the lower the cost goes. Um, I think that there's a big conflict in the agricultural industry right now between organic and conventional, Huge. and what that means and how it's sustainable. Um, I personally believe that. Raising animals organically and humanely is sustainable, and it is a much more sustainable future for our planet. Um, and that there's a lot of really fascinating work done, being done by farmers that are completely changing the mass agribusiness culture. Um, and I think there's a lot of conflict with that change. Um, so I don't like that it's only available to the 1%. I hate that about our industry. We want it available to every kid in every school. You know, the the budgets that are available for school lunches is – the more I learn about it, the more horrified I am that what we allocate to our children for what they eat, the food that gives them nourishment every day is so fundamentally low that they can't – they're being fed proteins that aren't really protein. You know, it's not really meat most of the time. It's mostly filler. Um, so it, it's a super complicated question, and I'm just hoping that we can do our little part to try and move the dial some um, by doing something really simple that's still innovating. So we're working really hard to grow our business as quickly as possible because we think that once we grow it bigger, the prices come down and go from there. Yeah, I know in, Mar- in Maryland, I don't know what it is, California, Maryland, the, the, I think the combined budget public school system food and they're divided into 25 different individual school systems it's like one billion dollars which is not a small amount of money um, I mean so there's all kinds of ways to kind of leverage how what you buy and how they're done I mean this is a I love this idea I mean I've never, actually never heard of this before because I don't I mean most of the time I run around and get my chickens from the farmers that don't live too far from me so I've never Never thought about this before. Yeah, I mean, folks are really busy and they don't have a lot of time to hand make food, which is is okay. Um, so we're trying to offer a solution to that. In California, the budget for a school lunch is between two and three dollars. That's oh. what they have to spend is wow. two to three dollars. Bupkis or nothing. I mean to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we spoke to one school district who really was trying to do the right thing, but they had three cents to spend on a meatball. Wow. So what is it? So, so clearly, your meatballs <laughs> cost a bit more than three cents. Yes. So, th- so this. So, uh, tell me how this, your business has grown. I mean, where have you, where have you ended up being able to sell the products you're making? I mean, because I'm looking at the other side too. There's a lot you do here. From- cool. Yeah. So we um, we've got a huge response from the industry. Um, so we are now sold in over three thousand doors. So we started like th- like I said three th- three years ago. We're in about three thousand stores today, including Whole Foods, Sprouts. We just launched into Target, and we just launched into 1,100 doors at Kroger. Hmm. Um, and folks really want the organic. Kroger, the, you know, these giant stores, like, they want organic, and that's because their customer wants organic. Right. Or they see the trend. And transparency also is, like, the number one trend, which we're offering. And, and I guess what you're also seeing in that industry is that, that when you describe places like Kroger and Target, or even places like Walmart, um, that that's where people – who have jobs nine to five trying to make a living, take care of families, actually actually do their shopping because, you know, there was a big argument we had here about people, some people in one community wanted to block Walmart from being built uh, in a neighborhood here. And what the fascinating part of the, about that was that the people who called in to support Walmart were the working class and poor working class folks who lived in that community and said, no, we want it, not just because of the jobs, but we want it because that's the only place we can afford organic produce. That's the only place we can afford to buy the food 
that we want is being as healthy for our kids. I mean, that's a, it's a, this whole thing is a very complex question. It is. And Walmart, did you see that report about Walmart that just came out? It's like their organic growth, their organic food growth is – they've done very, very well in the last year because of it. They actually – approved all of our products for, for launch there this year, but we had to pass because we just, it was too much too quick. How, yeah, how quickly can you grow? I mean, I mean, yeah, right. I mean, so you, so you, you started out by raising the chickens yourself on your farm, you and your wife. Yes. But then you realized you couldn't do that. Right. Because, you got, because people wanted your product and it was just growing too much. And the USDA, which is a whole nother subject we're not going to get into today. Right. Right. They have all their regulations. Yes. And the complexity of slaughterhouses and availability of slaughterhouses in the U.S. is incredibly complex. Anyway. No, it is. I mean, one of the things here, we, the organic farmers who – that I, farmers I know in Maryland especially who raise animals for slaughter, be they beef or chicken or whatever they're raising, that's the problem. They cannot find slaughterhouses close enough to send their meat to. So people have these traveling slaughterhouses. They try other methods of doing it, but – it yeah, really, the, it's a huge part. Of the, it's a huge problem. It is. So the the only slaughterhouse in for poultry in California, anywhere near us in California, is about a good four or five hour drive. So the cost for a local, my neighbor, to send his chickens there and back, you know, you end up the, the freight cost alone is just prohibitive to anyone um, trying to build their own business. It's just it's just too expensive. So you don't you, you don't you don't slaughter the chickens. The farmers you buy from get them slaughtered, then you buy the product yes. from the. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 tell me how quickly this has grown. Um, well, so last year we had an eight hundred percent year over year growth. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And then this year, um, again, we're we're growing. We'll probably double in size this year. Um, and then we've just had so a nut. Here's a whole new topic to talk about, but the What's that? the venture capital. Uh-huh. So we just closed on our first large uh, um, equity fundraise. Um, so we were just funded for by a, a group called Advantage Capital, who has specifically a fund to invest in food and ag businesses in rural communities. That's funded in was created in part by the USDA. Tom Vilsack was a big part of that creation, um, and it's funded by eight farm bureaus. Really fast, great, great group doing great work. So they came to us and said, we want to help you guys grow. And we put together a deal. We just closed on it for $2 million. That they invest in your They company. invested in us, um, which is also remarkable from a number of perspectives, but also as a women-led business, as a lesbian-led business, like it's very rare for those yeah, types yeah, of businesses yeah. to Not get any kind of right, right. venture. Right. Yes, exactly. right? It's like right. 0.8 right. of all venture capital goes to – we're like a unicorn. Okay, so <laughs> the purple unicorn right here. Um, so – with that funding behind us, we have the ability to really support the growth demand, both from a cash flow and inventory perspective, but more importantly, from a marketing perspective. Because we want folks to know. We need to tell our story. We need to be in the stores getting people to taste it, letting their kids try it, and really voting with their mouths. Um, so we have that support behind us now. So that's really going to help um, move our growth forward. I mean, do you think that an industry like this, like your hip chicks, hip chick, hip chicks, hip Chick farms, hip chick hip farms, chick, singular hip yes. chick farms. Um, that 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 this that your company or companies like yours actually have the potential of growth to become like a mass market. Yes. So Applegate Farms was mm-hmm. just recently bought by Hormel for seven hundred seventy-five million dollars. Um, there's a, so much growth in the natural and organic inventory. So, so three and a half years ago, there was very few. There was very a small amount of venture capital going into the food industry. That has completely changed over the last few years. That I've, at least in my experience, there's so many more funds. There's so many more dollars being directed into the industry, which is I think the change to people looking at impact investing over traditional investing. There's been a there's been a, a big surge in the interest. So there's more money there, and they're not looking at the kind of rate of returns that they're looking for with with IT, right? So they're looking mm-hmm. for like a 3 to 5x return rather than a 10 to 20 to 30x return. So as that availability increases, um, so then does – I mean, natural and organic foods are, is a multi-billion dollar industry now. Um, and, you know, and we see it. We think we can do it. It's a long way from the commune in 1970. 
Yes. I mean, and it's still those co-ops and those people, the granolas that are like changing the world, no, right? No, right? Like that's right. what's doing it. Right. It's so cool. I, I think that it's amazing how this has changed. I mean, and I had really, until you walked through the door today, I truly had no idea that in a business like this existed. Oh, well. Now I do. Buy Hip Chick Farms. Buy <laughs> So Hip Chick Farms, cooked in the easy, delicious artisan chicken. Yeah, yeah. You can find the store locator on our website. Um, what is your website? Hipchickfarms.com. Good enough. Yeah. Made with buttermilk. Yeah. Okay. One other fun thing yeah. I want to tell you about. Sure, um, so President Obama just invited uh, Jen to cook at the White House. So we will be there on October 7th. Really? Yes. Can fit in your bags? What's that? Can I fit in your bags? <laughs> yes, yes. So before I let you go, so what, what, what was it that, that, um, that uh, Rush Limbaugh said about lesbian farmers? Oh, that's the best. <laughs> he was concerned that the USDA is giving out money to lesbian farmers, which I said, and that lesbian farmers are going to come take over the farming industry. And I was like, <laughs> we are. Here I am. We're taking it over. <laughs> Good old Rush. Yes. <laughs> So, yes, Hipchick Farms is here to take over. Serafina Palandic, great to have you here. Co-founder and president of Hipchick Farms. Good luck with the business. Look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our interns are Morgan Barber and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Wall Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. The podcast of Mark Steiner Show. Share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.